Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. To put it bluntly, is telemedicine as good as in-person care? I'm your host, Alan Weil. We've all heard about the rapid expansion of telemedicine as physician offices shut down and people were reluctant to venture out of their homes in the wake of the rapidly spreading COVID-19 pandemic. Both public and private payers were quick to change their policies in response to plummeting office visits with CMS expanding coverage for virtual visits on March 17, 2020, and private insurers almost immediately following suit. Within just a couple of months, telemedicine use increased many times fold for those with commercial insurance, those with Medicare, Medicare Advantage. But how widespread was this increase? Which patients were using telemedicine? Which doctors were using telemedicine? That's the topic that we'll be discussing today. In this episode of A Health Policy, I'm joined by Sadek Patel and Michael Barnett, two of the authors of a study we published in the February 2021 issue of Health Affairs. Patel is a National Institute of Mental Health postdoc at the Harvard Medical School, and Barnett is an assistant professor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. They dug into the data on telemedicine and found lots of different kinds of variation that can help us understand where telemedicine has been and where it might be headed. Doctors Patel, Barnett, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having us, Alan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you today. It's a real opportunity to dive into these findings. Let's just start with the study itself. You're looking at the expanded use of telemedicine. That's a term that means different things to different people. So what do we mean by telemedicine? Whose telemedicine use were you looking at? Uh, what were you looking for in this study? Yeah, you know, as you mentioned earlier, we've seen tremendous growth in the use of telemedicine, and we define telemedicine as audio-video visits. And we were particularly interested in understanding telemedicine use for outpatient care during the pandemic. And our study focused on a population of roughly 17 million commercially insured and Medicare Advantage enrollees across the U.S. And we really wanted to understand at a population level what the variation in total outpatient care and telemedicine use was across patient demographics. And we particularly focused on disadvantaged populations as well as clinical specialties and conditions. So let me just pause there because it's a lot to take in. There are two people on each side of this. This isn't doctor to doctor communication. This is a patient saying, I need some healthcare services. I'm not going into the office. I'm going to do this remotely. And you're interested in who's the patient, what are their characteristics, and what types of doctors and what types of services the doctors are providing? Is that a fair picture of what you're studying? Absolutely. Okay. So what'd you find? I know there's a lot in this study, but let's just start sort of with the basics. You saw some growth among which patients, among which providers, for which services, what popped out at you? You know, the most striking finding overall in our study is that as many people have observed, telemedicine use just skyrocketed. So we found that it increased 23-fold, and that's largely because telemedicine was just not used very much before the pandemic. The part that, you know, at least the two of us as researchers found especially interesting was also looking at how did the drop in visit volume uh, change across different types of patients and doctors, because that's the part that worries us a little bit about the pandemic, that there might be a lot of care that's deferred or not happening that we may or may not catch up on. And where is the burden of that? Who is the burden of that falling on? Just want to make sure again that we're all together here. So it's great to see this increased use, but of course, the use is going up because in-person is going way down. And so 
rapid growth in telemedicine is still leaving people behind if the growth is slower or the number of new televisits is actually smaller than the number of lost in-person visits. Right. So what we find is that the number of in-person visits goes down significantly. But when you add telemedicine and in-person together, to think of that as kind of the substitute and the replacement for what would normally happen, we still find that the total volume of visits dropped by about a third. And it varied a lot by different groups. So for instance, visit volume dropped a lot more for kids than for adults. And that's something in other data we see actually persisting beyond the study period of our paper all the way through 2020. So let's pull apart some of these findings. First of all, it's really great to understand that like, because the base is so low in telemedicine, saying that there's a 23-fold or a 10-fold or a 50-fold doesn't really answer the question of whether people are getting their healthcare needs met. And when you see declines, of course, it's from a much higher base in in-person visits. So you can't say, well, 10% decline, 20% decline. The bases are so totally different. Dr. Barnett, you've certainly been looking at telehealth for a while. You had a paper in JAMA in 2018. There's a sense, I think, among many people that this was like a total discontinuity, like, you know, everything changed. Does it feel that way to you? I guess it depends where you sit. I think if you're someone that lives in the world of telemedicine and you think about it a lot or you run a telemedicine company, it probably feels like, you know, you were here all along. Like, how are people saying, you know, this wasn't happening? But I think from a health system perspective, it really is, it's kind of a singularity. Like there's going to be the pre-COVID times and the post-COVID times. And any analysis of telemedicine, probably of the whole healthcare system, but certainly of telemedicine, you really can't travel across that barrier without having to completely change the interpretation of how you look at healthcare before and after. And, you know, just as an example, I said there's a 23-fold increase, but, you know, before COVID, we found just, let's take an example here. Uh, for patients 65 and older, that 0.1%, so one in a thousand visits was telemedicine. And then after the pandemic, it was actually 24%, so nearly one in four visits. And that's just a massive change. You go from it being a very niche phenomenon to something that a lot of patients are actually doing over the course of several months, and it becomes actually fairly universal. Yeah, so it is a major discontinuity. What were some of the trends before this? Like, obviously, the base of use was very low if you're looking at one in a thousand. But presumably at some point it was zero and there probably were differences across specialties, across patients even before COVID. So I, I know it's a big discontinuity, but I'm, I'm curious if some of the earlier patterns seem to now go away or it's too early to tell, or you actually see commonalities in the patterns from earlier and now. It's a great question. We have been studying telemedicine for a while and also other research we published in Health Affairs uh, with members of our research group um, has looked at telemedicine use among folks enrolled in Medicare all the way back to 2010. And the general theme of telemedicine before COVID has been that it's actually been going on for a long time. But let's say, you know, around 10 years ago, the volume was very, very tiny. It was a very niche phenomenon. But what we found in Medicare and also in commercial insurance, kind of approaching 2020, when we get into 2018 and 2019, that there are two major stories that seem to have emerged in telemedicine. The first one is that by far the most dominant application for telemedicine has been mental health. And it's always been that way. And if you look at telemedicine through the lens of mental health care delivery, 
telemedicine is actually getting a decent foothold, even though it's still relatively uncommon. If you just, if you consider your whole pie to be who's getting telemental health, especially if you look in rural areas where it was used more. The second trend we saw, though, this is especially in commercial insurance, was starting in about 2017 and going into 2018, there was an enormous surge of the use of telemedicine for primary care. And we think we are seeing this because around 2017 or so, you started to see these large direct-to-consumer telemedicine companies really diving into the marketplace. And these are companies like American Well or Doctor on Demand who have always been there. And now during the pandemic, I think you know they've been quite overwhelmed and have a whole new relevance and um, different market position than they did before. But those were the trends that I think were most dominant going into this. So it's been a dynamic field for a while, maybe obviously smaller. You mentioned one of the findings having to do with children, but there's a lot more in this paper don't want to walk through every one of them, but it would be really great to hear a little bit more about differences across patients. You have some data on rural and urban. You said you focused on disadvantaged groups. Be interesting to hear a little bit more about that. Then we can get into providers and services, but why don't we talk a little bit more on the patient dimension in addition to children? Absolutely. I think one of the most important findings in the study with particular focus on patient population is the lower use of telemedicine among commercially insured enrollees in counties with higher rates of poverty and those that lived in more rural areas. And this is more concerning, especially because we do worry the most disadvantaged populations are likely the ones with the most deferred care and the highest need to maintain continuity of care. And so I think it's really an important public health concern to monitor to understand how the lower use of telemedicine among these disadvantaged groups may affect long-term health outcomes as well. And one of the things you do in the paper is you make sure that we don't just look at the 23-fold increase, but we also look at the gap between the decline in in in-person and the increase in tele. And so it's that gap that persists in these underserved populations. Absolutely. I realize that you're looking at claims data and you know there's limited insight you can gain You could imagine a number of hypotheses about why those gaps occur. Care to share any of them? Data is still evolving around exactly how is telemedicine being used after the pandemic, of course. We're kind of trying to study and build the plane as we're all flying it um, in the, you know, these crazy months. But it does seem uh, a, a consistent story that seems to be coming out is that minorities are having a harder time accessing telemedicine, that digital literacy is not something to take for granted. Many, many people have smartphones, and certainly digital literacy and internet access is far more widespread now than it was 10 or 20 years ago. But that doesn't mean there aren't you know, huge swaths of the population that don't have access to the internet or an iPhone or similar smartphone. And actually, there are a lot of people who have access to those things, but really just can't navigate it. I'm a primary care doctor as well, and I have a number of patients who I can give one example of a patient who has all the resources she needs and has the devices provided by her friends and family. But her arthritis is so severe and her hearing is so limited that they're basically impenetrable to her. And this isn't a niche case, right? There's lots of people with different uh, mixtures of disabilities and or um, education or financial barriers that get in the way of telemedicine. And we think those are really magnified in rural areas and among populations with fewer resources, kind of in whichever way you want to look at that. 
Well, it's a good place for us to take a break. When we come back, I'll be speaking with Drs. Patel and Barnett about some other dimensions of change in telemedicine use. To keep up with the rapidly changing healthcare landscape, you need the gist of the news. I'm Alex Olgan, host of the Gist Healthcare Daily podcast. I put the top healthcare policy and business headlines into context each weekday morning in 10 minutes or less. You can subscribe to Gist Healthcare Daily wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. My guests are Dr. Sadek Patel and Michael Barnett, who've written about the dramatic increase in telemedicine use in the wake of COVID-19. Before the break, we were talking about some of the patients who are at risk of uh, losing access or having diminished access to services. Your study also looked a lot at differential rates of use by provider type. You've mentioned mental health, but there are lots of other providers in your study. And I wondered if you could say a little more about the differences you saw across uh, them. Yeah, this was an aspect of our study that I found really fascinating because a lot of my research really focuses on how different parts of the healthcare system, especially different specialties, interact with care innovations and with different patient populations. So what we did is we really took a fine-grained look at how were visit volumes and telemedicine use changing across you know, more than, I think, over 20 specialties or so. And one trend was pretty clear, which is that the more telemedicine a specialty was using, the lower the, their drop was in overall visit volume. So I'll give you an example. Psychiatry was not surprisingly one of the highest users of telemedicine. And over half of their visits actually were telemedicine after the pandemic. And their drop in visit volume was around like 10% or so. You can go on the total opposite extreme and go to a specialty like ophthalmology or eye specialists. They used barely any telemedicine, maybe you know 5% or less, and their visit volumes dropped by over 50%. And you can kind of go along the spectrum and we see you know, a relatively convincing relationship between those two things. And it was interesting to me that there are some specialties which you could arguably do a decent amount of telemedicine, but it seems like they weren't exactly. So um, one example, for instance, is, uh, I guess this is arguable, but you could say dermatology, right, could potentially do some telemedicine. Obviously, the skin exam is limited by camera, but they could do a lot. There's, there is a history of teledermatology. You know, only 15% or so of their visits were telemedicine, and they dropped over 40% in their volume. And so I think there probably is a combination here of both the extent to which they can actually do any kind of telemedicine by video and also the culture in a specialty and sort of the preparedness of your average doctor to be willing to embrace this technology and try to give it a go. And probably the preparedness of the patient to think whether this is a service amenable to a telehealth visit. I think the built up experience when you get into the numbers you describe for mental health or primary care if you haven't had it yourself, you are likely to know someone when the rates are that high who's used that modality. When the rates are in, at the 5% level, you've probably never had it before and you probably don't know anyone who has. So I could see patients thinking, we'll put this off. So speaking of putting this off, um, obviously you jumped into these data very quickly. I want to ask what your sense is about what the implications are of these declines in utilization. And then let's turn to talking about the research side of this, which is what does it take to get results like this so fast when everyone is hungry for uh, more information? Before we do that, just talk for a minute about the implications of the decline in utilization. What, what should we be watching for at this point? 
I do think that's a key question. Um, as a health policy researcher and a primary care doctor, I care a lot about what types of care are being deferred and how is that going to be, how are we going to catch up with that in the future? I'm also worried about how can we protect ourselves against those that deferred care having downstream consequences that can really harm populations that are the most vulnerable. So I'll give a couple examples here. Um, one is physical therapy basically stopped in a lot of places. So very little telemedicine uh, for physical therapy, which is possible, but of course there are lots of reasons why it's you know hard to do. But there are a lot of people out there with chronic pain and musculoskeletal conditions where physical therapy is going to be their first line of therapy. And without it, I'm worried that they may end up being more reliant on other medications or have worsening chronic pain and all of the downstream consequences with mental health and uh, employment limitations and functional limitations that might come with that. Another example is, I brought this up earlier, but ophthalmology, so seeing an eye specialist. There are lots of chronic eye conditions that actually need fairly regular care or else people are going to lose their vision. So you know, people with diabetes, if their diabetes is not well controlled or if they miss an appointment to get treatment for diabetic retinopathy, you know, it may be it's, you know, they actually may lose vision they would have otherwise been able to save. You know, sadly, I'm, I'm, I'm worried, I'm you know, fairly confident that the uh, burden of this is going to fall on underserved populations who are already, you know, suffering so much. Um, and there are, I think, kind of the fewest, we have the fewest tools right now and resources available to us to help them. So let's turn to this question of sort of how you did this analysis. We have seen a huge increase in submissions in the COVID era because people are hungry for knowledge. And again, as you noted at the outset, the, the generic notion that the use of telemedicine went up, that, that was pretty well reported. But this, this more granular look required you to go deep into some large data sets that are not easy to use and don't always come out quickly. Talk to us a little bit about just sort of what it took to get this up and running and done in such a timely manner that it could help our thinking about the future of telemedicine while it's still under construction. Well, I, I'd say that our secret ingredient is Sadek, so I'm going to let him take a stab at this. We all need a secret ingredient. <laughs> Tell us how you did it. You, you know, first, just access to these data. I think second, having a, a strong team. And more important, just being able to merge both the granularity and complexity of claims data, access to billions and billions of lines, and being able to visualize that data and transform it into a way that we can make both policy and clinical implications from. And I think that was the biggest challenge in order to tell a clear story that provides both clinicians and health policy researchers with tools to create policy moving forward to help address some of the uh, healthcare delivery needs during COVID. So give someone who doesn't do this kind of work a little bit of a feel of how many lines and what is what do you mean by a line of data? Yeah, you know, just looking at a year's worth of claims data, let's just take 2020 through July, we're looking at about a billion lines of data. And if we're going to monetize that, it's anywhere from 100 to 200 gigabytes of data within that file alone. So these are Optum Labs data warehouses, terabytes and terabytes of data. And so it takes time to run these programs. It takes time to sift through these different lines of data and to be able to pull the specific pieces of information and merge them across multiple data sets. And just to, again, for those who don't work at this level, mm -hmm. 
you've converted this into people, patients, providers, services, but this data set doesn't have a list of people and providers and services. It's much more complex. Give us a sense of what that translation looks like. Absolutely. And so the, the data set comes in individual lines based on the billing and the claim that comes through for each individual visit. The challenge is then to take those billions of lines and transform it to both a patient-level data set, a clinician-level data set, a diagnosis-level data set. And so really it becomes the art of being able to just transform it in different ways. And um, that process can take anywhere to 1,000 to 2,000 lines of code, sometimes three or 4,000 lines of code, depending on how complex and granular you want to take these data. So in addition to the programming and the data, you have to, there's a learning curve for what's in these lines and how to make those translations that you describe. How long have you been working with this data set? What does it take to have a level of facility that you're confident that when you're making those translations, you're getting you know, what you set out to do? You know, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I worked in the data science uh, analytics for five years, uh, looking at finan- the financial sector. And so back then I used SAP software. And so similarly, you know, different software systems are built in, in similar ways. And so now working within claims data for the last two years now, I've worked with both Medicare, Medicaid, and um, the Hopton Labs data warehouse. And so they all have very similar structures as well. And so I think it's just merging those five and two years of experience has really allowed me to be able to work quickly through claims data and understand the intricacies, the complexities of it, but then to translate these billions of lines into the visuals you see in the paper to tell a, a clean story for our audience. So, Alan, if it's okay, um, I wanted to share just a few things about the about the research side because uh, I think there are a couple of other anecdotes. Absolutely, please do. One interesting story about the data that I think helped us move forward on this study more quickly has to do with the quirk in commercial claims data, which is that commercial payers it takes them a while to process claims. So, the most recent data that you have actually kind of like starts to disappear as you get towards the end of the data. So for instance, we might only have, you know, 10% of the claims we'd expect in July. And that's because they just haven't been processed yet. But the question is, how do we know which months we actually have enough data that we can confidently analyze it and know we're, we're seeing the true trend as opposed to just this artifact of the of data processing, claims processing. So my so our colleague, uh, Dr. Ativ Marotra, had the clever insight that we could actually look at birth rates at uh, women having births in the data as kind of our, as our steadfast measure of how complete are the claims that we have. Because if there's a big drop off, there's no great explanation for that. And it's probably just that the insurer hasn't processed the claims yet. But if we see that it's basically rock steady all the way through May, then we can probably analyze the data through May. And so that's what we did. And it gave us um, a lot of confidence to say, okay, we have everything through June and we're gonna analyze it and be confident about these trends. There's a lot of debate about the future of policy related to telemedicine and people are eager for as much data to build that policy on as possible. What's in the queue for your next uh, topic of research to help us understand the dynamics of this situation? Great question. And I think 
there's clearly going to be a ton of telemedicine research um, coming. It's it's funny because I have been doing telemedicine research since before COVID, and it was a little bit of a niche uh, prior to this because there just wasn't a lot happening, and it felt a little bit like, yeah, is anyone listening to us? And now it's it's a different story. But I'd say um, there are lots of questions that could be answered. But I guess two that come to mind, and then I um, I think Sadek I'm sure has his own questions. So one is that um, telemedicine is actually happening in a lot of places and from a lot of different types of providers. It's not just having a face-to-face visit with your primary care doctor. And so, for instance, in nursing homes, they had to use a lot of telemedicine because they, they don't want to have doctors coming in and out of different facilities. So, you know, how did that affect care being delivered in those nursing homes? Or there are other specialists that um, who may not be physicians that are doing telemedicine, like uh I mentioned physical therapists earlier, but there are also psychologists, there are speech and swallow therapists, you know, all sorts of different kinds of care, kind of how are, how have those industries changed? And then a second question, which I think is on everybody's mind and is tricky to do, but we're trying to think through it, is how does telemedicine use affect quality of care and outcomes, right? So, you know, to put it bluntly, like, is telemedicine as good as in-person care? And that's like a very simplistic way to phrase it, but you know there are lots of ways that one can look at it and try to ask, you know, on what dimensions does telemedicine seem to be basically working fine, and in which dimensions does it seem like telemedicine is really not meeting the bar, and we have to be very careful about it, either clinically or from a payment perspective. And to follow up on what Michael just mentioned, uh, I think a third question that I'm particularly interested in is understanding the extent to which broadband access and digital literacy is impacting the use of telemedicine. Well, Drs. Patel and Barnett, it's great to get this insight. It's great to have this front uh, line view of looking at data as it emerges in real time, uh, the challenges associated with doing that analysis, but also the really interesting questions that we already can begin to answer. Uh, which is so important given, as you described, that foregone care can turn into uh, lasting negative consequences very quickly. So we really need to get our arms around this. Appreciate the study and appreciate you being with me today on A Health Policy. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It was a pleasure to join you today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Brian Dobbs, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>